I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today, we welcome one of America's legendary film producers, Mike Metavoy. Mike was co-founder of Orion Pictures, chairman of TriStar Pictures, head of production for United Artists, and is currently the chairman and CEO of Phoenix Pictures. He's been honored with countless awards, including Motion Picture Pioneer of the Year, numerous international film festival awards, UCLA's Career Achievement Award, and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Cannes Film Festival. It's easy to see why. From agent to studio chief to producer, Mike has made some of America's great films, including Rocky, Annie Hall, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Platoon, Amadeus, Dancing with Wolves, and Black Swan. His films have garnered 17 Academy Award nominations and have won seven Oscars. This man has quite the resume, and he's still delivering groundbreaking work, both in film and television. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Mike Metavoy. So you have an amazing background, and we're going to go way back to the beginning, if we will, because it's such an interesting story, because you were born in China. That is correct. So can we talk a little bit about that, and why were you there, and why were your family (laughs) there, and started at the beginning? I want to say that I'm probably the last... Russian Jew, red-headed Russian Jew, <laughs> yeah. uh, born in China. But that's not true because my aunt also had red hair. and She she was a Russian Jew from Shanghai. What were you guys doing in China? I mean, you got two sides of the family. The, my mother uh, was born in Harbin in Manchuria on the border between Russia and China. On my father's side, they all lived in the area around Ukraine. In most cases, we lived a middle-class life, you know, wherever we went. And I think the same kind of stick-to-ness of Jews in Shanghai and in China happened again in Chile because, there, you know, there's a Jewish community there and there's temples there and, and there's a cohesion among Jews that stuck together. And that was always, that was the one thing that, you know, they could rely on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were your mother and father both speaking Chinese and fluent in Chinese? Yeah, yeah they were. Did they, they were. speak English as well? They spoke English. They spoke Chinese. But in your household? Because I know you're fluent in, the, in Chinese. In the house, they spoke Russian, some English, and Chinese wow. if they needed to. You know, But Russian was spoken more often. So you, well, you landed in Chile, and then what happened? Well, then I, what about Then I started, you know, seven? went to school. Um yeah, I was late, late seven, mm-hmm. eight. Went to um, the first school I went to was the Tobalaba English School, which was a private school that they insisted that you speak English when I was lear- trying to learn Spanish. And you were a little <laughs> boy, and you were fluent in Chinese. As I was fluent, fluent in Russian, I was I was fluent in in Shanghainese or Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Spoke Russian, and I started to learn English at the school. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the first kind of English schooling that I had. It was and a little that, scary, right, at that age to not be able to talk? or you, just... you know, at that age, you're not scared of, you shouldn't be scared of anything, you know. Yeah. There's some memories that stay with you forever, sure. right? Going to the movies was one of them. And the the interesting thing 
you know, to playing into memories was that I remember going to a, a theater in Chile and it was a, there were three Errol Flynn movies being played and it started, I think at noon and it ended at 1130 at night. Now I forgot to tell my parents that I would, you know, that I'd gone out. Of course they had the police, they're called the police. Uh, and then I arrived, I arrived back home. I had to take a bus to go home. My father was waiting for me at the, uh, you know, at the bus stop. And he was pretty angry. He said, you know, I've called the police. I didn't know what happened to you. You didn't, you know, next time let us know you're going off. How old were you? Do you think? I think I was probably 10 or 11. That's pretty young. Yeah. And we're Jewish. So when your mother was having a heart attack, <laughs> no, what, I don't what happened to you? Yeah. yeah, she, I think, yeah, both of them. Both of them were so the movies, the movies really... Well, they played, they played in the background because there's a element of fantasy going to the movies, right? That you go into in a movie, you just kind of, especially the movies of those years, because they were mostly, you know, Hollywood in the forties. You didn't have a fantasy at that age that you were going to do this for a living. No, I never, never even thought of it. Although, I mean, the the connection between what happened at those moments. And the later connection was mind blowing because it's it it makes no sense almost you know you go you know how did you go to Cagney movies and then get to have Cagney at your house yeah you know how did you <laughs> you know how did you wind up being Marlon Brando's executor it just doesn't compute yeah right it's pretty you've you had an amazing life you're a young guy you're in Chile. Mm-hmm. You have your education that is, is it completed in Chile or do you no, move to the I, States? I did. I moved to the, you know, my grandfather went from Shanghai to Hawaii <laughs> with my aunt. Now, if Hawaii was not a state yet. Now, he got grandfathered into an American citizenship because in 1950, Hawaii became a state. And if you live there in Hawaii, then you became an American citizen. So he became an American citizen and moved to Long Beach, California with my aunt, my other aunt, who was married. I had one other aunt, Polly, who was the redhead, who moved to Chicago. In 1956, I was attending a boys' camp that I used to go to every year. This was run by a guy named Donald Decker. Donald Decker was one of the most influential people in my life because... He opened my eyes to a whole slew of things that I never knew about. I started climbing mountains. I um, played tennis, learned how to horseback ride, learned how to swim, did all the things in camp that, you know, kids learn how to do. And it was, there were like, I don't know, 40 or 50 kids at the most and a bunch of counselors who took care of you. The last year I was there, I was a camp counselor to a bunch of kids. One of the kids was the son of the American consul. And and at the end, he came to me and he said, look, you've been such a major influence on my son's life. You know, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I want to be able to go to the United States with my parents. And I, we've been having a hard time getting there. And he got us in. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it was the weirdest 
thing, right? How pressing and we of you waited, to say we that. Waited, yeah, we waited for 10 years to get papers. We always wanted to come to the States and were never able to get in. You know, I don't have the full story. I don't have the full picture of it, but I have part of the picture. Part of the picture was during the war. My father, who was in Shanghai, had a really good friend who was Japanese. And the Japanese had a car dealership there at the time. And he was the guy that said to my father, you know, tomorrow, December 7th, 1941, stay inside your house and you and you're, don't, n- nobody go out. He knew it was coming. Wow. Right? So was he a spy? Was he, you know, something else? I don't know. I have no idea. What do idea. you think? It's It's hard for me to tell. I mean, you know. He knew that the invasion was going to take place. He knew the day that the invasion was going to take place. Did he, had he given my father warning? You know, one never knows. And at the end of the war, Takatori was his name. Takatori had to leave China, get out, and he needed to hide things that he was taking out. One of which, if I remember correctly, was a belt filled with diamonds. So Takatori got out. Years later, my father actually ran in, you know, ran, figure out where he was. He had started a shipping company, and a shipping company, I mean, he owned ships in Japan. And then years later, too, my father worked and, and brought Isuzu to America when it first started. So there was that connection. But you had no hard feelings towards Takatori. He was a helpful person in your life. But yeah, that might no, have stood in the none way. None whatsoever. Yeah. But you think it might have been a factor? May have been a factor. Remember, the 50s in this country, McCarthyism, right? And anti-Soviets, you know, all the all the Republicans were anti-Soviets. Uh, but there was no collusion at the time. <laughs> but uh, this, am- this ambassador smoothed that? Yeah, he made it. He, he got us in. That's amazing. You know, pure chance. What a pressing it to... Thing to happen. Right? Did you, yeah. Did you right move time. to Long Beach or Chicago or where'd you move? No, we went, we moved to Long Beach. At first we lived with my aunt for a little bit. And then, you know, my parents rented a house. Then they bought a house. My English was starting to improve, but not, you know, not up to par. I went to junior college for a year and a half. Uh, went to Long Beach City for a year and a half. And then um, I got into UCLA. And what the, year was this? This is um, nineteen sixty. So war's over. Vietnam is Vietnam is looming, and nineteen sixty three. I got my American citizenship. Became an American citizen. Joined the army. I had to go in because everybody was in. I was uh, a um, reservist. You were twenty two, right? Sixty three. I was twenty three. So you were twenty three. Yeah, I was 23. Then I decided, you know, the way to for me not to go to Vietnam if I didn't have to uh, was to join the reserves and go off to law school. And so I went to Hastings at the end of 63. And I was there for, I did the year, came back down to work at a, at a summer camp. In this case, I was a summer camp director. I had these two kids that I was the uh, camp director for. And the father of the two kids said, you know, you've been, the kids just love you and they're 
such a great thing. You've been such so helpful to them. You know, is there anything I can do for you? I said, well, that's very kind of you, but I don't, can't think of anything. He said, well, have you ever thought about working at a studio? I said, no, but I, I'd love to find out. So he said, well, I have a friend who runs the, the plant at Universal. And I said, um, well, I'm happy to meet him. So I went out to meet the guy and he said, well, you know, you speak languages and you know about the world. We're going to send you up to the, to the uh, international department. So I went up, met with the guys. They didn't have a job. So I went down and I said, you know, they don't have a job. Is there anything else I can do? So, well, the only thing you can do is something you won't want to do, but I'm going to tell you about it. It's called the mailroom. But, you know, they have really interesting people there. I said, uh, great, I'll take the job. When does it start? He said, Monday. So he made a call. I started Monday. I went in the mailroom thinking I was going to be the smartest guy there and everything was going to be easy. I'll be able to get out of there in no time flat. Well, what was interesting is that everybody in the mailroom was rather accomplished. They either had a <laughs> they were just trying to get a job, right? master's or PhD. <laughs> you know, all the guys went off to you know, doing other things. There were, you know, a couple of directors, Walter Hill was there. And, um, you know, so it, it was it was interesting. And I did that for about six months. And then I did get out of there. I became a casting director or assistant casting director at first. Then I started casting for um, the Bob Hope Chrysler Theater and uh, Dragnet, the pilot of Dragnet. Oh, cool. And so I became, you know, friendly with Jack Webb. We were quite different because he was a drinker and I wasn't. But because he drank, I used to, he used to ask me to drive him home. <laughs> One day, I got an offer for a job as an agent working for a small agency called Robinson and Associates, a guy named Bill Robinson. I decided I, I wanted to leave Universal. So I went to see Jack Webb, who I was working for. He said, oh, no, no. He said, don't leave. You know, you got a big future here. You know, I'm going to call Lou Wasserman. And I thought, oh, God. Um, I remember him. Right. So I, I went to see Lou, said, look, I hear great things from Jack. You know, is there is there another job that you want here? And I said, uh, well, frankly, I think I want to be an agent. That's how you started. Why, you know, that's a good way for me to get going. He said, well, how about, you know, helping Jay Stein, who runs the the um, studio tours, I said, no, I don't, that's, not, that's not what I want to do. He said, well, is there any other job that you want? I said, well, there's a job I want, but you're not going to give it to me. I was thinking of how the hell do I get out of here? <laughs> and he, he said, well, what, what job is that? I said, yours. He said, you're going to be a good agent. That was my last conversation with Lou until years later when we had, you know, I kept meeting in various He things. was an amazing guy. I had lunch with him one time up at Universal. Yeah. And uh, he was just some, he was a spectacular businessman. Yeah, Re a, a really interesting story behind him. I mean, it's just, you know, he was he's somewhat private, yeah. if you remember. He was not, you know, I mean, in the latter years, after he had sold to the Japanese and then had been taken over by uh, Bronfman, you know, he, he, people would go out and visit him, but it was uh, it's like going to visit a, an ambassador, you know. Yeah, he used to hold court in the Universal Commissary. You'd yeah. see him there every day for lunch. Yeah, and I, I would I would go there. Um, to have lunch with him a couple of times, you know he was a he was a Democrat and he had you know worked for Lyndon Johnson and got to know Lyndon pretty well. That was arranged through the guy that actually eventually hired me, which you know was Arthur Krim, 
was a much more fascinating guy than. I don't know that Lou. I've ever. I know who he is, but I never. I know his who name. Who is Arthur Krim? Arthur Krim was a lawyer. Started off as a you know at a, a law firm in at a law firm in New York called Krim um, Benjamin Ballin. The first name was a very famous lawyer whose name I'm blanking on. And then he came out to Hollywood, started a company called Eagle Lion. Then he went from that to buying United Artists. He bought United Artists in 1950 from Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin. The deal, which is the kind of deal that I always love, is that you buy a company and basically pay for it by making it work. So in effect, really using the profits from the company to pay back to the people that you bought it from. He was an extraordinary guy. He was... He had, he had worked, he lived in the White House with Johnson, and he had two portfolios, Africa and Israel. You know, he had a ranch next to Johnson. I mean, Johnson just relied on him completely. And I understand it because he was brilliant. I mean, he's the only brilliant guy I think I've met in the film business that I go. Now, there's a guy that's really got us. He created a format that you wanted followed. to emulate and follow. Yeah. For sure. He, he taught me the, the essentials. How would you, you say just, he was your mentor? You know, I don't think he'd ever say that. Um, Is he alive? I, lear- I, learned, yeah, I learned from a lot of people, right? But he was a perfect guy to learn from. It's like Donald Decker, right? Perfect guy to learn something from. What were the essentials? Well, the, the film business is a distribution business. The business is the distribution, right? So you have to make movies in order to to um, have that distribution system work because the way it works is that the, the, work, the way it worked then certainly and that is that everything is a 30% distribution fee to it. So if you make a movie, the first 30% comes to you. That's the way the business operated. And it was an interesting lesson because I'd become a really quite successful agent. You know, I ran um, the motion picture department at IFA and before that I had been at... CMA. CMA actually was, the, the people who were at CMA were people who had been at MCA. MCA was the mother of all agencies. That was the, they bought a company, a record company. And with the record company owned Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. But they also, before that, they had a company called Review, which is what they were syndicating television with. This is, you know, lose baby, so to speak. They all started in the band business. Like big bands, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Krim got Lou into meeting Johnson. And, you know, Krim was the um, national finance chair of the Democratic Party. So, you know, he had a lot of power in the in in Washington. So he was, he was an interesting guy. By the time I came around, you know, there are lots of kind of interesting aspects to the relationship. One of which was that in 19... 19- 78 or maybe seven, the company had been sold to Transamerica. And this was an insurance company coming into the movie business, which didn't make any sense whatsoever. One of the things they wanted was fifteen a 15% growth each quarter. Quarter. Yeah. <laughs> which didn't make any sense, really. It's like late years later, somebody was talking to the Sony people and this guy, this Japanese guy says, you know, why don't you just make hits? Just make hits. Yeah. Forget okay. the rest. Well, it's wow. not, not See, that we easy. We intend to not make hits. We want yeah. to make shitty films. Yeah. Anyway, they wanted to get rid of Krim because they felt he was too old. So Krim didn't want to go. He turned to Eric, who had hired me, 
Eric said, um, we'll start a company with you. So Arthur and Eric and myself and Bill left United Artists, you know, at the height of what we were doing. I mean, we were, you know, hitting home runs every year. You know, there's just, we'd, we'd had... Um, Can you name some of those home well, runs? Well, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was the first. Then um, Annie Hall, then Rocky, then Apocalypse, then, you know, you name it. I mean, it was just one after another. It was all seeming to work really well. But they also had this booklet, which was always funny because the booklet had in it that, you know, nobody was to get a car that was better than a than a uh, Oldsmobile or a Cadillac or a Chrysler or whatever it was. And, of course, I was, at the time, I was driving a Mercedes. <laughs> you know, that that was one of the things that they uh, they had a problem with. Actually, eventually, they they offered me the job that Krim had to see if I would stay. And I said, no, I'm not, and I'm not going to stay. I said, I'm, I'm leaving. And I walked out the door with the rest of the guys and started Orion Pictures. Were you nervous when you walked out the door? Or were you? No, I wasn't. I love the name of that company, Orion. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of funny because... You know, we all, we, f- we figured that Orion had five stars. And if you look at Orion, you look up, you know, you can see the belt and you can see the sword. And you can usually see five stars. But in truth, actually, there's more than five stars. There's seven. Uh, I think it's seven. And um, it's interesting because, you know, I wasn't crazy about the logo when we, when we first got it. You know, someone told me that they, they had the Orion logo up in Toronto. And when the logo came on, people applauded. Mm, wow. I remember uh, Orion Films just like I was a big film buff as a kid. I grew up in Indiana and I right. just remember feeling like uh, this is going to be good. Like it was that kind of a yeah. uh, almost Pavlovian well, we got, connection. We, we, did, we did get a very good reputation for making good movies. But, you know, I it's interesting because I, I, uh, somebody wrote a, um, a study of Orion and I think it was at some college in England. And I went back and looked at it. You know, to see, okay, well, what did we do wrong? And, of course, they they liberally quote from my book and arrive at some of the same conclusions. But, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of movies that I wish I hadn't done. But you're known as a person. Your reputation has always been that you're a talent whisperer. People that work with you in the talent area love you and admire you and are tremendous loyalty to you. You know, over the years, I've made a lot of friends, and uh, and I've been supportive of these people as artists, you know, because that's what they are. Right. It's pretty clear to me that it's an art form that requires a lot of people to be, you know, right. And But they require tending to. You know, you have to look out for them and recognize that they're artists. Well, you, you know, it's like, a, it's like dealing with children, right? If you're dealing with children, you want to encourage them to do their best work. And you don't want to take credit for their work. And what happens is that there are a lot of people that deserve credit for good work. It's not just about me. Right. And I, and I hope I got some of that in, you know, in my book. You know, it isn't about me. And there's, invariably, there's going to be people that are upset that I got any credit. Right. <laughs> it's just... You know, just part of it. It has a lot to do with ego. It, it's part of their ego. It's part of, 
you know, the fact that that's what drives them. It's not what drives me. It doesn't, you know, I mean, the work is what drives me. You know, it's like saying, hey, I'm, you know, I look at the painting and I, it's great work or it's, you know, just a mishmash of nothing. You were talking earlier upstairs about the collaboration and yeah. co-creation and, you know, your temperament just and your reputation is, is one of being very good at collaborating. And like you say, let yeah, I mean, I do have, I do have a point of view. Talk right? about how that all works. There are lots of things that play into decisions of making something or being a part of something, being a seller or a buyer. You know, there are all kinds of things that play a part in it. In the best of all worlds, you get people or projects that you think are really good. And then you try to make and make it as well as you can. Right. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't for lots of different reasons. Timing of release, subject matter, you know, somebody in the mixture screwed up, whether it was me or somebody else. It's hard to tell what what it's going to end up as being. But if, you know, if you're working with really talented people, the likelihood is that you'll do something really interesting. And whether it works or doesn't work is also dependent on a number of other people. It's the marketing people. Mm -hmm. It's the, these days, the studios are much more reliant on marketing people than they are on almost anybody. You know, they're, the marketing people think that it's going to work. Well, I never did that. You know, I always thought the marketing people get the product you you give them and they make the best out of it. And, you know, I had situations that I think are in the book about the movie called Coming Home, you know, which we did. Mm. And there's so many stories about Coming Home as there are about almost any movie that I've been involved mm -hmm. with. I can tell you stories about each one of them. And Coming Home... I was Jane Fonda's agent, yeah. as I was Waldo Salt's agent, as I was Hal Ashby's agent. Now, there was one other person in it, which I don't even know if I tell the story or not, but this other person had worked with Jane on the, on the original script. And the reason I represented her is because Jane brought her in for me to represent her. Now, she had every right to sue the company and Jane, because her, you know, she didn't, I don't remember if she ever even got credit, you know. And so I was rather shy about making that movie because I knew that there were, forget the political issues, there are also the legal issues. And I had to explain this to Jane not long ago, you know, because she said, well, you didn't want to make the movie. Well, that wasn't the case. I just didn't want to get into a lawsuit right. about the movie. It's hard to make good work, to let good work happen sometimes because of all the yeah, I mean, it's... Minds in the field. Well, there are, you know, there are minds to everything in our, that we do in life, right? I mean, some people can walk out of here and get hit by a... It's unlikely that you're going to get hit by a rock, but, you know, it can't happen. So the, the point I was going to make is that the marketing people saw the movie and they came into my office and said that I should be ashamed of myself for having made that movie. You know, this is an anti-American movie and how could you do that? And I was kind of despondent because I thought the movie was really good. So I called Eric up. And Eric says, you know, you know what? Tell those guys to come home because they were living in New York. He said, uh, you know, their job is to sell it. You know, their job is not to tell you whether it's, they think it's good or not. Right. Wow. Um, and that was, you know, that was the best lesson from that moment. It's true. Everybody has an opinion, don't they? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Good or bad or whatever. Right. I don't, I don't mind listening to other people's opinions. Well, I just, and, and the role of art and film is art is to create the conversation and to, yeah, I Move mean, it's, you know, it's, it's changed so much now because, you know, fewer people go to the movies this year. It was 2% fewer than. Yeah, uh, that's 2%. only going to get yeah. big more and more and more. But the, but the ticket prices are high. And, of course, it's gone down 4% the year before. And, mm-hmm. you know, it keeps going down because who's, who's, who's going to the movies, right? That's the first big issue. And this model that's going on right now with these people that are doing these, um, like, movie pass, you know, yeah. where you can go and see, you know, whatever number of movies. Well, they're trying to attract people to go Yeah, to how can movies. you make it's... money on that? The model around that is very, very difficult. Well, And you go there... see a film and there's 20 minutes or 30 minutes of promos before the film starts. Yeah, the, because they're trying to figure out how to sell it to the to people, you know. And so, they, so they get people to say, well, I want to see that when it comes out. It's all changing so drastically that it's almost unrecognizable. I mean, the Hollywood that I kind of grew up on is gone for all intents and purposes. There's no, you know, there's no movie kingdom per se. And it's harder to put films together now to package them than it was 10 years ago or five years ago than it is now. Well, if we're talking about movies, but, you know, they're, you know, the B movie has become the Netflix movie. Right. Right, or the Amazon movie. How does the model work on a Netflix film? Do you know? Um, well, it's subscription-based. No, right? Netflix is, so, but if if you make a film and yeah. you sell it to Netflix. They give you about 25% over your salary, and then they own it. And forever. they own it. Yeah. So you make a film for, I'm making right, this you never have, up, you don't have You don't get a back end. You don't get a back end. No. So is the is the impetus for a filmmaker today to make a film... To sell to Netflix so that they can get their product out there, and they make they know that they're going to get a guaranteed get a, return. It's, on. A, it's a you know it's a salary based. Is know. it a good model for who? For <laughs> for, for a filmmaker. More films get made. More yeah, more films get made. Um, you know, do they stand out? No, not really. You There's know, so much people material. would rather yeah people. I think people would rather make a good movie. Most of them are, are having a hard time figuring out. Most of the studios are having a hard time figuring out how to make money. You Have know, you done just, any television? Uh, I've done one thing in television, and I'm working on about seven mm-hmm. other television when you When you say you're working on seven other television things, are these um, episodic shows? Yeah, some of them are you know episodic television series. Some of them are like seven hours of... Miniseries. Miniseries, yeah. Are you, I, I read in our research, you're working in Shanghai again or collaborating? I'm in on a project called The Water Margin, yeah, which is one of their four famous novels that mm-hmm. they, you know, they love. Is yeah, that, I've been working that, with the Shanghai Film is Group. Is that for the Chinese language market or for the U.S.? That, how is it? That one is specifically for the Chinese market. However, I always say I'd rather make a movie for the world market. So if we can do it, great. And if we can't, you know, we can't. But I prefer that. Well, it's a strategy now to include Chinese stars in American films. Well, I mean, look at the huge hit that, you know, this Chinese movie has had, you know. Crazy, crazy Rich, Rich, Asians. Rich Asians. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when I leave here, I'm going to a meeting with a Chinese guy coming from Berkeley, some project that he's got, a book that he's written. It's almost half the market, if you mm-hmm. think about it. On the other hand... You know, I would say that 
Trump's fairly crazy in most cases, but I think what he's trying to do in China, if he can pull it off without all the noise that he brings along with him, you know, would be smart. It just, unfortunately, you know, it's too public. Okay, so can you summarize that for our audience so they can understand what you mean? The idea of fair trade in a world that's basically growing up on international trade as the basis of maintaining democratic ideals is a good idea. And that obviously needs to be revised constantly. The Chinese have taken advantage of a number of things. One is they build faster, they build cheaper. They have a huge population. They do basically, you know, close their markets to certain things in order to defend their political philosophy. Give me an example of something that they close their market to. You know, only a certain number of films can get in, mm-hmm. right? It's not market-oriented. And Is that number they, published that you know that they're trying yeah, to zero yeah, yeah. yeah, they do have, they have a number, and I can't tell you the exact number, but... Uh, it could be 25, it could be less. I'm and that's sure. it. So if they that right. they say they're going to let 20, let's use that as a number. Yeah, or unless you, you know, unless you get a co-production of some sort. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. there's so they're protectionist. Yeah. You know, from their point of view, I understand it. But from our point of view, you know, we believe in open trade, right? Open Now, it doesn't work for them because there are not too many people that are going to go see a Chinese language film here. You know, not enough people speak Chinese. You know, it's a question of finding the biz- where the business model is that works. The problem is that, you know, if you're going to take measures like that, they have to be, you know, quieter in its approach. You know, it's called diplomacy for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it usually goes behind the scenes. So, but, but when you come there with your reputation and your body of work, it must be, an because uh, I understand in the Chinese civilization that this is an honor to have a conversation with somebody of your esteem and stature. You know, I don't go there thinking that, but if it is, it is. It's, um, <laughs> it's a you good know, policy. <laughs> yeah. What? So can we go back to um, Arthur Krim? Yeah. Is he alive? No, he passed away. He passed away. And yeah. so he, this was and his somebody... wife just passed away. And she, by the way, was, you know, a fascinating character. I mean, Born in Switzerland, was not Jewish, became Jewish, went to Israel, worked on cancer, was at Sloan Kettering. She married Arthur. And I think that the whole AIDS awareness, she started AMFAR, you know, with Elizabeth wow. Taylor. She got Elizabeth Taylor to join her. I was, at, I was at the house when she was trying to figure out how to get some real notoriety in AMFAR. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, an amazing woman. Mm. What an impressive thing to have done. So who else in your life besides him has had a profound impact on you and your career? Well, I said Donald Decker, right? right? Uh, Arthur and and my partners, you know, in varying degrees, um, some more than others. You know, as of late, actually, strangely enough, Brando, although in a very kind of strange way, because Brando, I didn't really know Marlon that well. You know, I got to know him in his latter years. Well, you made an amazing film about him and his life. And if you could talk a little bit about what you've done, because you've also opened an amazing place. One of the things that Marlon did, you know, in the 60s, he bought the, these islands called Ticharoa in South Pacific. It's now become the number one, you know, um, destination resort in 
Polynesia. And he had been talking for years about finding a way to put a hotel or get some money out of it so that he could actually build something there or sell or lease one of the islands. He never talked about selling because you couldn't, can't sell anything there. So he had been talking to this guy, Dick Bailey, about doing a hotel there. When he passed away, you know, we went ahead and did it and got this 100% eco hotel there. And it's become amazingly successful. I yeah, mean, it's, it's just, a very called? hot spot. Yeah. What is the hotel called, the name? It's called the Brando. The Brando, <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. An amazing destination. It's a, you know, you fly to Titura, which is, I mean, t- you fly to uh, Tahiti, and you take a, a, a plane to... Um, Chichiro, which is about 15 minutes flight from the... And the island is just spectacular. I mean, it's a great big lagoon with 13 islands that surround it. You know, everybody that goes there, I mean, Obama was there for eight weeks or, you know, writing his book. Um, you know, big names that basically they want to be left alone. They don't want to be photographed. Because that's part of what's going on is just the idea of privacy being totally stolen from you. There's no nothing private anymore, right? Mm-hmm. You know, detectives on you, and mm-hmm. you know, makes your makes your life a little bit a little bit harder. Yeah, it's weird. People walk through the airport, and you know, they're trying to keep their own space, and people are photographing them with their telephones, and yeah, you know, people are. Well, look at what we've got on our phones. I mean. I, <sighs> I have over 2,000 pictures on my phone. So, Brando, you say he's influenced you more now. Well, it's that, interesting because I've thought about some of the stuff that Brando did, you know, defending the American Indians, the ecological work, mm-hmm. if you think about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all pioneer stuff. And you're seeing the wisdom of, of his foresight in this respect. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing, so, I mean, something I didn't see it when he was when he was alive you know, it, it didn't didn't dawn on me until later. And um, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, I know he had his problems with Coppola. And I I'm recently was emailing back and forth. And he's, you know, he said, you know, he was a real genius, Francis says. And I, and I agree with him. I, you know, I hadn't thought I hadn't thought of it in that way. You also had a close working relationship with Jack Nicholson. I met Jack early on when when he just started. He was working for Corman at the time, did a couple of movies. And a client of mine at the time was a guy by the name of Monty Hellman, who was my first kind of young director client. I mean, I went from Monty Hellman to Spielberg and then Lucas and Coppola. And I started accumulating a list of directors that was pretty unprecedented over the years. And they all became, you know, friends and good people. You know, which was which was great because and they became the next generation. And I think that generation of the sixties is always an interesting generation. I just got a email from Richard Dreyfus, who I've known forever. And um he said, you know, we ought to take all those people and bring bring them in one place. He said, and we could probably fill up Central Park. <laughs> yeah. And get all those people together. What it what a, to do panel. Well, they just yeah. kinda celebrate our it's a cool idea. You know, well, it's, you know, it's a cool idea, but I don't, you know, I don't know how you'd do that. <laughs> he was one, he was in such wonderful films, just wonderful yeah. films. He's proud of those films. He lives in San Diego. 
It's coming up for dinner. It's just kind of nice. So Krim was a guide and he, he was involved politically and you also have I, put your hand to. Yes. I must admit I got involved in politics before I met Krim in college. Actually, I had a roommate by the name of Richard Mullen. And I don't know if you know Mullen Fairbank, but Mullen Fairbank was a Democratic, you know, advertisement, you know, uh, house that mm -hmm. did all of that stuff. Richard was my roommate and he and Jerry Brown were good friends. So I got to work with Jerry when he first, the first time he ran. Mm -hmm. You know, my interest has always been in world politics. I mean, outside of graduating from UCLA, I'm also part of the alumni at Harvard. So... I was on the board of the of the Kennedy School. Yeah, you're a true internationalist. I mean, it's remarkable. Like well, from your birth yeah, through I mean, to now I, with your collaborations with right. the Chinese. That's what do you think about interest. the business today? What do you think is happening? Are to you the up? business today? Yeah, to the movie business today. You know, it's not a good idea to say that it's worse. It's not a good <laughs> idea, uh, in my opinion anyway, to not analyze the world uh, going backwards. I think you got to go forwards. What is it? Where is it going is usually the question it should be, right? I mean, I have the, the question I always say is, okay, who am I? What am I doing here? Where am I going? Those are the questions that are usually the, the philosophical questions that one asks. There are certain things I didn't recognize were going to be what they were. You know, I mean, I could have been somewhat involved in Andy Warhol's world, but wasn't, and no interest in it, and never thought of him as an artist. You know? <laughs> there are people that would agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought, that's, that looks like advertising to me. Yeah. You know, Campbell's Banksy, I get, Warhol, I never really it's got. In, it's interesting, though, that looks like advertising to me. It's like, so how is advertising not art? I mean, that's what I would push back and say How well is that's not? the that's the question really because it is uh, can be well everything is art right exactly who do you think is doing amazing work today out there that you that you know and, uh, that i admire you yeah. you know about movie makers or yeah movie or television hmm, that's a that's a good question what i find is that everybody can do um good work sometimes and not so good right. next time it's just it's just a question of you know, did they hit the spot or not at that moment? I, I find myself thinking, I want to leave a film crying, laughing, feeling yeah. good, happy. Did you see I yeah. went to see Coco. Did you see the film Coco? No, I haven't it's, seen it. Uh, it's an animated film, obviously. Yeah, I walked yeah. out of that film. I think that might have been one of the best films I've seen in such a yeah. long time. The music was great. The animation was great. Yeah. And you were just so happy. Heard, yeah, it did really well. Really too. fantastic film. Yeah. Are you generally optimistic about the business as it is today? I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm not. I mean, somebody asked me if I still love the movies like I used to. And the answer is, no, it's really hard work now for me to, to really get into it. And there are things that I do, you know, for one reason or another that have nothing to do with, I'm, you know, other than the fact that I want to make the best movie I know how to make out of the material. You know, it's there's nothing out there that I go, that's a real talent. That's a real great film i you know i find damien chazelle's his last movie that my son loved really good but you know is, is it to the level that i go that's really great and 
uh, stand the test of time. And that's usually what it is, right? Yeah, I mean, so, look at some of your films, Cuckoo's Nest. What I mean, uh, so many of the films that you made will always stand the test of time. Well, that's always interesting to me because the question is of the films that I do Personally, if I'd taken 1% of the gross from all the movies that I've done, <laughs> you know, we would be sitting you know, We'd be sitting on Marlon Brando's yes. Island. Yes. Yeah. You would have taken I mean, um, Rocky, Annie <clears throat> Hall, Cuckoo's Nest. Well, and think of some, some of them. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's great. I mean, even some of the ones <clears throat> I was thinking about um, Network the other day. Oh, what a great film. You know, and you go... I'd forgotten how good that movie was when I took a that look at it again. That movie was amazing. And I just remember the making of that movie and the, the comedy that happened before that, you know, trying to select the director or, you know, the ones that are kind of interesting that have, you know, RoboCop, Apocalypse, Platoon, Amadeus, another Oh, my goodness. Great I film. love that film. Right. Totally holds up too. Yeah. Great. Film. I told it's, you before when I walked through your halls and I took over when we were with Jonathan Koch yeah. and we walking through your halls and he said, "Caddyshack, <laughs> yeah. my favorite movie of all time." Yeah. And uh, and I, go, I told them the guys that work for me, you know, and they <laughs> watched it ten times, twelve times, three times, and sit with. Well, me. there's a there's a book on Caddyshack. It's kind of interesting. I mean, the whole story is kind of interesting. Each one of them has. Interesting memories for me. I can go through each one of those movies. Well, it's you and have, they all have a story, you know. Just walking through your offices, walking through film history, it's just amazing. I mean, you've made so many films and have had such an impact on the film industry. How many films have you made altogether? Do you know? Yeah, about three twenty, three twenty-five. Wow. Think about that number. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's a long. And list. of those films, how many of those films do you think about, rose about to a the third. level? About a third? Yeah, about a third are really great. That's a great batting average, my friend. Yeah. That's incredible. Pretty, yeah. pretty good. So you could make amazing uh, criterion versions of each film telling those stories, too. It would be fascinating film yeah, by film. Yeah, I mean, it'd be... Um, the book has some of those stories, yeah. right? But they're not, they don't have all of them. Yeah. And, and each one of them, it's kind of interesting, you know. Each one of them has their own side story that's always kind of interesting to me. You know, the relationships that I had with some of the directors going, you know, as they grew up, I grew up. And you have fast friends. Everybody that knows you respects you and recognizes the, the incredible integrity you bring into every project that you do, which I think is a wonderful quality. I'm constantly reminded uh, as I get older that we're not here forever, you know, that what we leave outside of the friends and few f members of the family that uh, become important. You know, at the end of it, nobody's going to remember. You know, we're, we're here for a fleeting moment, and it's the work that we do that remains. Right. And if it's good, you know, that's, that's what you leave. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a wonderful way to end this interview. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot, That Mike. was great. You're welcome. It's Thank terrific. you so much, really. Having you in the studio today was such a treat. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Next time, we welcome Dovi Francis, an international financier, entrepreneur, and now runs a venture capital firm based in Los Angeles. Over the course of his career, Dovi has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in some of Silicon Valley's most prominent and disruptive financial technology companies. 
He serves as a director on several boards and is a member of the prestigious Advisory Council of Lumi Bank. He holds a Guinness World Record for creating the largest life insurance policy ever. And he made this happen while he was under the age of 40. Dovi is one of the main shark investors on the Israeli version of Shark Tank. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Dovi Francis on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram.